Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning, saints. How important to you is the unity of this body? Is it something that you, by how you think and act and behave here, are actively promoting? Or is, by how you think and act and behave, are you undermining the unity of this church? We're working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we come now to the second chapter of that letter. And the first 11 verses, which we're going to spend a couple of weeks on, really comprise one great appeal for unity in Christ's church. And this appeal lies at the center and heart of a letter to one of the finest, healthiest churches that Paul ever had dealings with. There's not anything in this letter that we can discern that's like acutely wrong or majorly wrong with this congregation. Paul, the fact that here at the center of his letter, he uh, emphasizes the need for unity does show us, I think, at least where he thinks the danger lies for them. Whatever news Epaphroditus, this good man from Philippi, brought with him to Rome, communicated about the church, the news, the the report of the church, too, that he gave to Paul, whatever was in that, Paul sniffed out or discerned some some need (laughs) to urge them um, in in his response to them, in his thank you to them to recommit themselves to a certain attitude which is going to promote unity among them. And so the, this is the existence of this passage and the emphasis that Paul puts on unity here, the need for it, um, teaches us something. It teaches us that unity is not to be taken for granted. Do you take it for granted? It's not to be taken for granted. And God's kindness, there is a sweet spirit of unity among us at this time. I'm very thankful for it. But it's a tenuous thing. It's constantly under threat. Fracturing the church, dividing the church, is one of Satan's main objectives. And that's because this is one of Christ's great desires, that his church would be one. He prayed for that in in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. This past year, we've seen... Uh, one of our mission churches that's a part of our presbytery collapse, fall apart, tear, down, tear itself down through division and strife and fighting uh, to great upheaval and impact on dear brothers' lives, people that we love. Uh, another church that I've heard about in the last couple of weeks is in meltdown right now over similar issues and fighting and disagreements between leaders and congregants. We don't know how that's going to play out, but it's, it's, it's sad. Unfortunately, this is an all-too-common tale. Churches falling apart, and that can happen quickly. So we need to be vigilant. An appeal to unity is always timely, and maybe especially in times of peace, like God has given us now. Let's look together at this part of God's word, this is the second chapter, first 11 verses of the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is God's word, 
and it is eternally true. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So every part of that very great and memorable passage works together to form a, an appeal for unity in the church. It's rich and important enough that we are going to spend two weeks on it. To help us wrap our head around the structure of this passage and how it all works together in Paul's appeal, I've tried to map it out this way. In verse 1, Paul gives the motivation for the appeal that he's making here, the motivation. In the second verse, he states the object of the appeal, what he's after, the ideal state that he envisions for the church to maintain. In verses 3 and 4, he lays out the thrust of this appeal, what it requires, what unity requires of each of us in order to maintain it in terms of our attitude and our behavior. And then finally, in the fourth part, which we're going to look at next week, the, in verses 5 to 11, Paul invokes the greatest possible example ever of the kind of attitude and behavior that he is commending to the church in Philippi. That's the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his great condescension from heaven all the way to the point of the cross. So we're going to look at that example next week. It's a rich enough and wonderfully told story about Jesus that is great and deserving of its own sermon. Let's see what God has to say to us as we look at the first three parts of Paul's appeal for unity. Paul begins with the motivation for his appeal in verse 1. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. That's the motivation. What is he doing with this string of if statements, these conditional clauses? Well, what he's doing is he's invoking the Philippians' personal knowledge and experience of gospel blessings that they have known and felt as the motivation for what he's going to call them to do. We said 
couple of Sundays ago on a sermon on the previous passage that gospel obedience is downstream obedience. It flows out of what God has done for first done for us. We love because he first loved us. We're, we're able and we're motivated to love because God has loved us. That's gospel obedience. Any, you can just insert any, form, any requirement of obedience. It is flows. If it's true and godly, it flows out of gratitude for the immense love um, and grace of the Lord Jesus and taking action towards us first. And Paul is demonstrating that principle in how he structures his appeal for unity. Calling the Philippians to unity, he starts by reminding them not only of God's goodness toward them in Christ, but their personal, present experience and enjoyment of that goodness. His repeated use of if, all these conditional statements, is rhetorical. He's not casting doubt on whether the Philippians have actually tasted of these things or experienced these things in their life. What he means by if, well, if in Greek can mean different things. There's different ways of using if in Greek. Sometimes it just is truly conditional, like where it might be the case or it possibly could be true. But that's not how Paul is using it here. There's another use of if, of those kind, that kind of clause in Greek, which is more like because it is so, since it is true, do this or that thing. And that's how Paul's using it here. It's more like, because there is um, consolation and love, do this. Respond in this way. But he's putting it in this questioning, sort of pleading way. You know, it's a, he's not in authority mode. He's not rising up in his authority as an apostle to, to, to teach and require things. He's working with the people. He's pleading with us in how he forms his argument. He's, and what he's doing with these ifs is they force us to stop and think and take stock of what is there, what kind of encouragement is in Jesus and, that I've received. It forces us to call it to mind, to go through that exercise. So that's what he's doing. He wants to stir us up from the knowledge and the memory, the rehearsal of the kindnesses we've received from God in order to motivate us to what he's going to call us to do. So what blessings is Paul specifically trying to call to the Philippians' minds and to our minds? Let's walk through these statements and see for ourselves, see what it stirs up in ourselves. His first statement is, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Is there any encouragement in Christ? What does he mean by um, encouragement? Well, that's a word in Greek that is, that is periklesis. You might recognize that word from how Jesus, what the word Jesus calls the Holy Spirit um, in, I think it's in John. But he says, he calls the Holy Spirit the paraclete. And that word just means coming alongside to help. Walking alongside to give assistance and help. Periklesis. Anybody here experienced Jesus coming alongside you and giving you help in your life? That's the common experience of a Christian. We have come to find Jesus our helper, our guide, our friend in deepest need. Like the psalmist says in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. In every condition, Jesus is there leading us and helping us. He's coming alongside us. What encouragement to know the Lord Jesus. 
to have his steady hand, his rod and his staff comforting us. That's David's just voicing the common experience of a Christian in beautiful language. And Paul's trying to call that kind of thing to mind. If there is any encouragement in Christ, well, what comes to your mind? I hope things are coming to your mind. Moments and places and times and ways that Jesus has come to your aid and been a friend to you and a guide to you. The second statement is, if there is any consolation of love. Consolation is a word that just means comfort. Is there any comfort in love? I think what he has in mind is the love that, uh, that God the Father has expressed toward us in Jesus Christ. Is there any comfort in that love? Have you experienced it for yourself? You know what that's about? Have you ever been overwhelmed with the shame and the guilt and the weight of your sin? Sometimes I remember things from my childhood or my youth. When I least, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to think of the past, but all of a sudden it just comes into my mind and it just overwhelms me with shame. At those kinds of moments, have you also had the grace of God in the promises of God come to your mind and, and reassure you and steady and give you comfort? Where would we be? under the weight of our sin, without the promises of Scripture regarding God's comforting love. He is called by Paul the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And he expresses that comfort to us in love and makes it known to us in his word and by experience in our lives as his Holy Spirit brings it to mind and applies it to our hearts. Times of grief and difficulty in our lives where God comes near to us in comfort of his love. One of the benedictions that we use at the close of our services sometimes from 2 Thessalonians says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Have you known that comfort personally? Paul assumes that you have. He's not calling it into question. He's stirring it up. The memory and the knowledge of that in your life. I hope you're stirred up. The third statement that he says is, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. There's, what fellowship of the Spirit can you say as a Christian that you've enjoyed and experienced? There's at least a couple of different categories of the fellowship of the Spirit that we could explore. First and the greatest one is that the Holy Spirit gives us fellowship with the Father and the Son. It is by the Spirit that the Father and the Son make themselves known and felt and experienced to us. It's by His Spirit that we know that we are the Lord's, and that we belong to Him. John, 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in Him that he, and He in us because He's given us the Spirit. That's how we know that we abide in him. He's in our hearts, it says, crying out, Abba, Father, confirming that we have a God as our Father and that our hearts belong to him. There's also the fellowship and communion that the Holy Spirit creates between believers. Just as we have communion and fellowship with the Lord by the Spirit, that same Spirit unites us together in communion. We say in the creed, almost weekly, I believe in the communion of saints. 
And that's in the last category of the structure of the creed, which is following, I believe, in the Holy Spirit. He creates this communion and unity between believers. There is a kinship thicker than blood that the Holy Spirit establishes in his church. And many of us, all of us who believe, have to some degree come to know it and to feel it and experience it. The McNellies are new here. Welcome. They were telling us about their church back west, Arizona or New Mexico, Washington, and how sweet the fellowship and the bond of that was. This is the church. The true church is spirit-filled and spirit-bonded together in fellowship that is far thicker and truer and more lasting and deeper than even the bonds of family and kinship. And many of us have come to know that, that we feel much closer, have way more in common through the Spirit with one another who are so different and from different, maybe even different countries than we have with our own family members who don't believe. That's a common experience. And Paul's calling us to that, to that memory uh, to mind by his asking of this, or this, the way he frames that question. Is there any fellowship in the Spirit? Well, yes, there is. The fourth statement, which I think is an overflow of that Spirit-filled blessing in one another and that bond in one another, is if there's any affection or compassion. Have you experienced the overflow of the Spirit um, in the body of Christ, uh, the pe real people, brothers and sisters, coming to your aid in affection and compassion when you need it? And maybe not as often or as much as you want <laughs> But if you're a Christian and you've been here very long or been in a good church very long, you've felt it. You've experienced it in real practical ways. Sometimes you just have to intimate that there is a problem in your life or a crisis in your life and you see the church spring into action out of affection and compassion for you to give you some help. This is the beautiful thing. Is there any affection and compassion available to us in the church? Oh, there is. Paul assumes that he's speaking, he's speaking to Christians and that we all have this, these experiences and he wants to stir the memory of that up in us as motive and incentive to give ourselves to this thing, this, this ideal of unity that he's going to lay out for us in verse 2. Here's where he gives the object of his appeal. He's because, or rather, let me read it again. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, what? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So, in short, Paul wants us to get along and be unified, to have a to share in something that unites us and holds us together in an insoluble bond. There's nothing that can make me happier than that, says the Apostle Paul. You want to make your, your spiritual father happy? Get along and be unified. Any father or mother here can easily understand that. There's just nothing that gets us more discouraged more quickly than seeing our children fighting not getting along and bickering, being selfish and not caring 
about the needs of others. Right, moms and dads? Paul is a spiritual thought of this church. Everything they know, they receive from his teaching. And he wants to see them unified. I guess you could say that their concern for Paul's joy, which they've expressed by sending him gifts and his imprisonment from a long distance away and at great cost to them, you could say, I suppose, that that's another motive or incentive that he's appealing to. If you can't get it, if you can't bring yourself to do it for the Lord, for the Holy Spirit, for one another, do it for me. I guess you could say that. But I think you can also say that Paul is making himself the part of the object of his appeal. Grammatically speaking, in Greek, this is the imperative of the passage. Make my joy complete. And the rest that follows is how you can go about doing that. It gives Paul joy to see his spiritual children unified and together and one. Now, the unity that Paul envisions is not one that merely conforms in externals. It doesn't consist in all of us driving hail-damaged cars. I mean, that just makes good sense, but... Not, we don't all have to grow our beards out, men. We don't have to share the same taste in music, same love of opera or hatred of opera. That's not the unity that Paul is talking about. We don't have to agree about the same about we don't all have to agree about the shot. You know we don't. These are things that can easily tear us apart and divide as simple as the color of carpet. That's the usual that's the kind of uh, what's the word hackneyed joke. But it's not far from true. Churches can tear themselves apart over disagreements about the color of, an, of furniture in the building or of the carpet in the building. Just add something more serious and more personal and more invasive like inoculations or injections. And you can see how easily in our disagreements over that we could divide. This is not the nature of the unity that Paul is talking about. Cults specialize in that kind of external forms of unity, that surfacey stuff. The Church of Jesus Christ is not a cult. In fact, it is a wonderfully diverse place. NPR, when they talk about Christians, they talk about like we're this uniform thing, uh, you know, like we're all the same person. With the same, we vote the same, we dress the same, we go to the same places, we go to the same schools, all this stuff. And it's just not true. You've, if you've been here very long, you know it's not true. How do you even explain knowing each other the way we do? What, would any of us have any, like, more than a passing acquaintance with each other if we didn't share the same love for the Lord Jesus and, have this, and share the same spirit that he's given us? We wouldn't. There's no, there's no way to explain what ties us together apart from spiritual Love for the Lord, blessings from the Lord, experiences of God's grace, being Christians. There's a variety of gifts in the church, and there's an attending variety of perspectives and tastes and opinions that's part of the beauty of the church. 
There's room for personality in the kingdom of God. In fact, I think it's an important thing. Paul is not opposed to variety. He's not opposed to diversity. The gospel celebrates that, actually. But there is something that we are to, like, be lockstep in common and have and share identically with one another. Something that we are just like, what? What's something pejorative we could say about it? Like, you got something? Well, lockstep. You know, like we're supposed to be drone-like about. That's what I'm looking for. Supposed to be like drones about. Conformists. There's something to conform to. And what is it? Paul envisions a unity that is internal and spiritual that flows from a shared attitude or disposition of mind. A certain attitude of mind that we are all equally and fully to share. The Greek word translated mind in this passage, in verse 2 it appears a couple of times, and in verse 5 it appears again in the Greek. It's the same word, but it's translated differently in this passage. It's almost like it's a word that doesn't comfortably come into the English language, and so they are struggling different ways to get it across in the it, all throughout this passage, the scope of it. It's translated mind, purpose, attitude. And it talks about how this attitude, which is also in Christ Jesus, is the same word that's translated elsewhere as mind or purpose. Attitude or mindset or attitude of mind is probably the best way to understand what Paul's saying. What is this attitude of mind that he's calling us to share in common consist of. As the passage goes on, further develops, and even as we get into next week, it just becomes increasingly clear that what Paul envisions is a unity that flows from a God-given gospel and power disposition of humility, an outlook of humility that we bear, that allows us patiently to bear with one another, that doesn't, that keeps us uh, with a sort of, that pokes our own bubble, <laughs> keeps us sort of low and deflated, <laughs> not discouraged, but just not thinking highly of ourselves, an attitude of humility that allows us to put up with one another in variety of opinions, differences, and in many, many failings. That sees everybody else here in the room whether they're high or low, above me or beneath me in rank or gifting or whatever, as a worthy recipient of my sacrificial service. That's the inward attitude we're all to possess. Those are the glasses we're supposed to share in common and look through as we view ourselves in the world. Everybody here is a worthy recipient of my sacrificial service. They don't exist to build me up. I exist to build them up any way I can. Whatever God has given me to do that with. That's Paul's object. He wants a unity 
of outlook, of attitude that consists in humility and love and fosters a spirit of peace and togetherness in the church. Let's look at what he says in the next section, verses 3 and 4, where he gives us the thrust of this appeal for unity, what that unified attitude consists of, what it requires of us, what it looks like as it's lived out in action and behavior. And this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the hard stuff. This is where we have to put in the sweat and have faith to do this work. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the thrust of Paul's appeal This is what we do to promote the unity that he desires for the church. It's presented in in some negatives and some corresponding positives. Some things not to do and some things to do instead. We're told, first of all, not to do anything out of selfishness or empty conceit. That word selfishness has appeared before in the previous section, chapter 1, when Paul was talking about those people celebrating those those uh, members of the church who were emboldened by his imprisonment to go about preaching with more uh, confidence and boldness. However, some of them did it out of selfishness, out of selfish ambition. It's the same word. We're not to be like those guys. That's what he's saying. We're not to do anything out of selfish ambition. Apparently, the same temptation that was... Uh, confronted those preachers that they were no match for is a temptation that is open and challenging to all of us. We face it, all of us, in whatever uh, part of service, whatever part of the body that we make up, whatever we're, we're attempting to do for the Lord, we're facing this temptation to do it out of selfish ambition. What are your motives for serving among us? It's clear, the way Paul treats those pastors, that most of the church didn't see what they were up to. And Paul kind of leaves them alone and gives them a pass because I think because it would be more, uh, it would be difficult for the sheep who have come to trust their shepherds. Even these guys who they don't discern their false motives in preaching. Because they're preaching the truth, Paul leaves them alone because it would be too unsettling to the church to deal with them head on. Well, what does that teach us? That teaches us that we can do our service under the cloak of righteousness. We can make it look really good. People can celebrate it as really amazing and helpful. And it be all about us. About our ambition. About getting something for ourselves. Those men had corrupted the office of feeding in order to feed on people. That's what they're doing. They're trying to get something, ultimately, for themselves. That's what they're about. We can do that too. That is undermining the unity of the church. We're not to be about that. We're to repent of that wherever we find it in our lives. We're also warned against doing anything out of empty conceit. That's the kind of Um, kind of empty glory that a self-satisfied man puts on himself. 
pats himself on the back spiritually. You remember the, the Pharisee in Jesus' uh, parable about the, the Pharisee and the publican? He sort of sees the, the tax collector over there and he thinks, oh Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like him. I've kept your law from my youth up. Well done me. That's vain glory. That's empty conceit. Where we put on ourselves or congratulate ourselves. Glory that is not real. Not really ours. Christ came humbly to humble us. There should not be among us a spirit of smugness or pride in anything we do. Wherever we find that in our lives, that self-righteous tendency, we're to shun it, repent of it, get rid of it. We're not to do anything out of that kind of spirit. That is contrary to the unity of the body. In opposition to those negatives, there's corresponding positives um, that are commended by Paul. In verse 3 he says, But instead, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Humility of mind is that inward attitude we're to possess in common with each other. Those are the glasses that we're supposed to be looking at ourselves and everyone else through. And that's not to be confused with false modesty, by which the humble person who presents humbly and is always reminding you in all kinds of ways about how humble they are, um, that they're actually just trying to, uh, from, a di from different means, seek from you what they're after, the, 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 the attention that they desire for themselves, the affirmation that they desire for themselves. I love one of the... Uh, Pastor Tim said lots of awesome things, but a lot of them came from his dad. And you guys remember this one? His dad was asked in an interview one time, what are you proud about, are you most proud about in your life? Remember this? And he said, well, somebody told me once I'm a humble man, and I'm proud about that. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? He's a humble man. He knows himself. He knows his temptation to pride. He's trying to pop it and kill it at every chance he can. True humility does not go around unnaturally or falsely um, uh, point, uh, diminishing or ignoring or defining out of existence our differences or real strengths or abilities. Now that Jason Chin is gone, I'm probably the best violinist in the room. I don't know, if you're, if you're a violinist and I don't know you, good on you, you're probably better than me. But of the people I know, now that Jason's gone, I'm probably the best violinist in the room. And of the people that I know here, I'm probably always going to be the best violinist in the room. It's dumb for me or you to pretend otherwise. <laughs> I actually mean that. <laughs> Wouldn't it be dumb? For me to go like, oh, I'm, I'm actually, I mean, Cheryl's probably way better than me. It's just not true, you know? That's, Paul is not calling us to deny truths about ourselves, skills, abilities, virtues that we possess. He's not trying us to get us to pretend that those don't exist, or gifts for service that are big and large, or many. We're not to go around acting as if we don't have those things. That's not what this humility consists of. It starts with a proper estimation of ourselves as dependent creatures under God 
well aware both of our weaknesses and the glory that we possess, thanks be to God, as, as his image bearers, as gifted ones. But it doesn't make too much or too little of those things. It's just, you know, it, it understands. It takes them in stock. So it starts with a proper estimation of self. It doesn't lie about what we have or what we don't have. But at the end, it's not self-focused. That's what this, the amazing principle that Paul is getting across here is. It's not like calling us in this humility to deny who or what we are, what we've been given, but it also, it's just not self-focused at all. The humility of mind that Paul wants us to share in common is the will and ability to de- dedicate all that we have, all that we've been given, all that we are, in sacrificial service of other people, of the body of Christ. Our gifts, our talents, our rights, our privileges, our prerogatives, all of those belong to the Lord and are given to us for the good of others. That's the outlook we're called to have. To see them as existing for others and not for ourselves. Humility, the kind that Paul's talking about here, sees others, whether they're low or high, as more important. More important than ourselves. And therefore, you, all of you, more important ones than me, are worthy of my self-giving sacrificial service. And you're to look at everybody else in the room and think the same thing. Whoever they are, they are worthy of my self-sacrificing service and love. It's not hard to see how if, if that was the attitude we all had and shared in common together, if that was our unity, what a beautiful place this would be. That's like heaven on earth. Anybody knows it. You can easily imagine it. And this is where Calvin is really refreshingly honest and frank. <laughs> Listen to this. Now, if anything in our whole life is difficult, this is the worst. (laughs) I just love that because it is. If anything in our whole life is difficult, preferring others as more important than ourselves, taking an interest in their needs and their affairs, not just our own, that is the worst and most difficult challenge that we face. It's not natural. What's natural? He goes on to say, it's not surprising if humility, if we find humility so rare a virtue. For as one says, he's quoting somebody, everyone has in himself the mind of a king by claiming everything for himself. That's who we are. That's our nature. So what Paul is calling us to is something completely contrary to our nature and of ourselves. But the gospel comes to humble us. First by making us see who we really are outside of Christ. Condemned, worthless, rebels, rebels 
deserving of hell and nothing more. That's who we are. We think of ourselves as kings and what we are is wretches. And the gospel starts to humble us by pointing that out and impressing it upon us through the law of God. But then it further humbles us by showing the links that God has graciously gone to extend his love to us and his forgiveness and to take away that sentence of death by taking it on himself. The gospel reminds us who we are. And that's what promotes humility, remembering who we are. What is the greatest threat to, the, to our unity as a church? What's the greatest threat to our unity as a church? It's not COVID. It's not masks. It's not decisions about education or about diet. All of those things are things we discuss and debate and fight about and could tear us apart, presumably. But that's not where the danger lies. Where does the danger lie? In some of us, or all of us, forgetting who we are. Forgetting what we've been saved from. Forgetting that we don't deserve anything good from God. Not a seat in this room. Not a gift from the Lord. Not salvation. Not an opportunity to serve others. Not the privilege and honor of being served. We don't deserve any of it. It's all comes as a gracious gift from the Lord. And the gospel reminds us of that constantly. Calls us back to remember it. And empowers us to live in a new way. So when Paul says, don't do this and don't do that, but instead do this, what he's calling us to do is put off the old self and its old ways and habits and desires, which are evil, and put on the desires of the Lord, which we have come to know because he's given them to us and shown us. He demonstrated them to us in the gospel and in his gospel acts. Paul knows we need to be reminded of that because it's like, we've, it's like yeah, unity sounds nice. Yeah, oneness of mind, I, that sounds great. Heaven on earth, I'd love to be a part of that. And then he tells us next in verses 3 and 4 what that requires of us. Well, it's like, shoot, I didn't realize the way was straight up a 10,000 foot cliff. Jesus has opened the way. And Paul's going to go on in the verses that follow, which we're going to talk about next week, to show us that way, which Jesus has trod, and the glory that was given to him, which is ours as well, if we follow him. And we need to hear that. I want to close today just by reading a few words of Jesus from the Gospel of John. Words that he prayed in his high priestly prayer, John 17, the night in which he was betrayed, the night before he gave his lifeblood in obedience to the Lord for the good of your soul, out of love for you, which you don't deserve. We've seen up to this point Paul's, the importance of unity to Paul. Now I want to see us to see together the importance of unity to the Lord Jesus. How important it is, how significant it is to him. 
okay? This is in the middle of his high priestly prayer, right at the heart of it. And he says this in verse 20 of John 17. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these disciples here in the room with me, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's all of us. We've come to believe their word. Here's what I ask, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Whoa! How important is unity to the Lord Jesus Christ? His prayer there makes clear that unity is the evidence of God's glory in the church. It's the sign to the world that Jesus was truly sent from heaven, sent of God. If we're not unified, the world doesn't know and can't believe and is not confirmed that Jesus is sent from God. It says it's proof that we are loved by God. And it's a divine gift by which we are invited into the unity that Jesus has with his Father. Our unity is their unity. Or it's not unity. It's they have opened the door to us by Jesus' sacrifice into their perfect communion. And so what we learn from this is that to sin against the unity of the body of Christ by selfish ambition, envy, pride, fighting, division, is very personal. It's not a sin against the institution of the church or the bylaws. It's not a sin against a creed, doctrinal statement or position, or just disagree. It is a sin against the unity of the Father and the Son, which they have graciously opened to us to enjoy and share in. So it's very, very important that we be done with pride and that we take on this humility of mind and attitude and serve one another in true love. God, keep us humble. God, keep us humble so that we may be one. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for the unity and fellowship that you have with Jesus. 
and we are grateful to have been welcomed into it and to taste of it and to experience it in fellowship with one another, in deep bonds of, of affection, compassion that we have experienced from each other. And I pray, Father, that you would help us not to undermine it, but to zealously promote it, and that you would make us humble and serviceable and loving and eager to place other people's needs and perspectives and um, desires above our own. Would you help us to do this, Father? We know you have the power. Jesus has paved the way. He has shown it to us. And I pray as we come back next week and and remember what he has done, that you'd work that same attitude into our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.